Welcome to the Tech and Main Presents Podcast with your host, Sean St. Hill. Sean is the CEO of Tech and Main, a technology consulting firm in Atlanta, Georgia. Listen in as thought leaders share their tips and insights about what's going on in the world of technology. And now, here's your host, Sean St. Hill. Thank you for joining another episode of Tech and Main Presents, where we bring you the best insights from today's leaders and experts in technology. Today, we will be speaking with Andy Lombardo. Andy is the Director of Technology for a public school system. Andy, welcome to the Tech and Main Presents podcast. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. Oh, Andy, it is a pleasure, sir. Thank you for taking time out of your day to be with us. And so, Andy, with that, why don't you share a little bit of your background with our audience? Sure. So like you mentioned, uh, I'm involved in educational technology. And for me, that journey really started the first 11, 12 years or so of my career as a classroom teacher. So I began teaching middle school English uh, in grades six through nine uh, for the first 12 years or so uh, out of college. And during that time, went in you know, with the idea of I wanted to be a literature master and share stories with kids and that kind of aspect that I was really interested in. In that side and kind of what I found as I got into actually teaching is I just really enjoyed using technology to enable and enhance what we could do in the classroom. Um, and so that kind of uh, shifted gears from teaching students and teaching them the tools to use to supporting teachers and being able to use those tools. And so I shifted from teaching the classroom to educational technology, instructional technology. We had a role in our school of a technology coordinator who basically would handle things like, you know, day-to-day break-fix things for teacher and student computers. And it was right at a time when our school system was going to a one-to-one model where we deployed laptops to all the kiddos. And so as part of that process, we set up a student-run help desk that I managed uh, where we teach kids how to fix most of the most common issues with their laptop and things from software troubleshooting to physical repair. So we'd have kids cracking them open, replacing screens, or, uh, you know, giving them the, have you tried turning it off and back on again? Uh, kind of that whole range of training and things that they might see as a frontline worker. So so we did that with eighth and ninth grade students when I was there. And so it was a combination of you know teaching students how to maintain hardware, uh, but then also training teachers on available tools for instructional technology, because it was really a paradigm shift going from everybody has just the, the classroom desktop computer and their interactive whiteboard to everybody has a device. Um, so it was a big shift in kind of how we approach those things. And so after doing that for a few years, uh, I got really more and more interested in the infrastructure side of things. And so I went back to school and got a bachelor's in cybersecurity and started kind of going down that path in terms of, you know, I I really enjoy teaching and the instructional side of things, but I'm just really interested in, you know, how things work and building things and making solutions. So I just, I really got bit by that and um, transitioned from that role into technology support for our entire district as the director of technology. And so that's kind of how that that path worked. Okay. So that is an interesting winding road, Andy, (laughs) to go from the classroom. And as I mentioned uh, before we started, you know, my wife is an educator. She's a third grade teacher here locally in Atlanta. And so you've, you've really got that holistic view, right, of what it means to not only be an educator, but to be a technologist and then to be able to know 
how and why technology is important and what it can do and what it can't do. Because if you give technology to a bad teacher, Andy, they're still going to be a bad teacher, but they've got dope technology, right? Right. So I'm fascinated and and just really intrigued by that background because we, we don't often have a chance to talk with someone like yourself that's got that, you know, that dual citizenship, if you will. Yeah, it's an interesting place to be because, you know, everybody in the, as a classroom teacher has been on the side where they want to do something new and innovative. But the default answer is no, for this reason or that reason or, you know, whatever. Uh, and granted, there are times that I say no, for sure. But I definitely look through, through that lens. That's the product that we're here to produce is that teaching and learning. And so striking that balance of trade off between it's an acceptable level of risk for something that's innovative versus just blanket denial. Oh, that's yeah. I I love that answer. Um, so, Andy, as we mentioned, and as you were so kind to share, you know, you are the director of technology for a public school system. You know, what would you say has you most excited about your daily work? So I think right now we're in a place where the most exciting thing for me personally is that I'm working with a fantastic team. So I mentioned that you know early on I was here for the transition to that one-to-one process. And the staffing took a little while to catch up to that because when we first went to -to one-to-one, we were basically supporting 10,000 devices between student laptops, teacher laptops, teacher desktops, server infrastructure and everything there added up to about 10,000 devices. And we had a total of two certified technicians on staff. So that's grown out to where we've had more emphasis on staff who can help handle that load of managing devices, managing systems and things like that. So it's taken a few years to make that transition where we were originally, our staffing was more focused on the instructional technology side, where most of our technology staff were those former classroom teachers who were at the building level working on that transformation. And what our goal was at the, at the onset was that role would become filled by teachers who were just naturally innovative. And looking at the technology is it, it's just a tool and you don't need a special gatekeeper to be the one to show you how to use the tool. It's all the teachers are in there together and they've got all these tools. And so we shifted the instructional technology going away from that person and being distributed amongst teachers and shifting staffing into that more technical side to be able to upkeep. And so the the team we've got going right now is just fantastic. They're great to work with. They're really enthusiastic. And kind of our mission is to just enable and enhance learning. And they're all in for building solutions and opportunities for teachers and students to be able to to really take it up because I think you mentioned something about, you know, technology in the hands of a bad teacher, you know, at the worst with something like a digital transformation, you've got teachers who are just substituting and saying, okay, I've done this worksheet for this lesson this week of this month for every year for the last 20 years. Now we'll do that worksheet on the computer. And so that was, that was the last thing we wanted to see. And so really trying to make sure that we've got the tools both on the instructional side and on the, the technology infrastructure side to be able to have teachers say, you know, instead of, you know, just replicating a worksheet, how can we really synthesize knowledge uh, with the tools that we have? And so being able to work with a team that loves doing that, they love to come to work, they love to come up with ways to fix problems. You know, we're talking the offices always about, you know, how can we improve daily work for everybody internally on our team and for teachers and for students and administrators. And so it's really satisfying when you've got everybody bought in and everybody gets along and uh, it's just a it's a great work environment. Oh, that's that's awesome. So, Andy, I want to ask you this question as far as the technology 
that's available. You said you're currently one to one, right? Which again, for our listeners, means that you know each of the students in the classroom has their own laptop or tablet device or Chromebook, you know, depending on which district it is. So that's that's awesome. I wanted to ask you, you know, we've we've still got you know some of the pandemic funding, CARES, ARP funding um, that's you know been earmarked for school districts. Have you guys been able to take advantage of some of that? And and if so, in, in what way? Yeah. So so on one hand, we were really well poised for the pandemic because we already had everything in place, all of our procedures and routines and policies and all the things that a lot of people were struggling with. Of what do we do when this happens? You know, we'd already hammered out a few years ago. And so it wasn't it was a really seamless transition. And we the only hard part of it was that we made the call here to go into lockdown over spring break. And so there were scenarios where in kindergarten through third grade, they don't take home their devices. So we're like, oh, we have devices for all these kindergarten through third grade students that have to get home. And so we had to work through some of that logistical kind of thing. But for the most part, it's a really seamless transition. And so the way some of that federal assistance has helped us is that we've kind of rolled that into our normal kind of renewal cycles. And so... You know, we just we've lucked out that it was at the time where we needed to be refreshing devices and things. And so it really it's something where uh, we wouldn't have been dead in the water without it. It was definitely, definitely helpful. (laughs) Okay, great. Well, I, I appreciate you sharing that. And so, Andy, one of the things that got you and I connected was an article that was written recently by where, you know, you and another gentleman shared some insights around cybersecurity in the K-12 realm, right? And so what I wanted to do was ask you about cybersecurity, specifically ransomware. Help us define it and then whatever else you'd like to add to the definition that you're about to give us. Yeah, so so ransomware is responsible for a lot of the spotlight in cybersecurity right now because it's the, it's the scary boogeyman. And there's so many different techniques and varieties. It's a little hard to peg down, but you know, at the end of the day, you've got, you have your data in your systems and somebody is holding that hostage in some way in exchange for money. And so, you know, the main ways that we see that are the most, I, I guess what most people think of is that, you know, your computer or your system or your network's been compromised and you come in, you power on the computer and there's a, a background screen that says, you've been ransomware, send us this money and we'll send you the key to decrypt all of your data. And so that's kind of what people think of. And so, you know, there's that debate of when that happens, do you pay the ransom? Do you restore from backups? There, there's a, all those discussions around that. But then sometimes what people will do is they'll just do basically the same thing where they encrypt all of your data and they put the message and say, give us money and we'll decrypt it. You send the money and then they, they actually don't have a decryption key. And so you've just got your stuff locked and you give them money and there's no solution. And I think what's scariest, uh, you know, because you can, on those two scenarios, in theory, if you've taken backups and tested and you have a good process and you can just restore as long as they've not been in your system long enough that your backups have their ransomware as well. Um, but there's that new third class where they're really more interested in just exfiltrating your data. And so they might not even encrypt what you have. They'll just tell you, you know, hey, I downloaded these 40 gigs of data from your file servers. Here's a sample of what I have. Pay us money or we'll release it publicly. So, you know, on the one hand, it's a little less scary because your stuff's not encrypted. You still have access to it. Uh, but if you have sensitive data, uh, you're really over a barrel as to whether you pay or not. Oh, that's a that's that's a good point. I mean, you're 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 caught over a barrel, so to speak, either way. 
But I think the most insidious one is that last one that you mentioned where you've got 40 gigs, student, parent, and staff data. And we were talking a little bit, you know, before um, we started recording about one story that's out there now where these hackers are taking that personal data, right? And they're, they're actually starting to go after individuals now. And so, so technology, amazing. And in the hands of good people, technology is really, really good. So Andy, thank you for sharing what you did about ransomware. Let's, let's go into what, what are some things beyond ransomware that we should be concerned with? What, you know, what should our listeners that are, you know, in higher ed and K-12, what, what should they be concerned with? You know, one of those things in that, what keeps me up in that category, uh, we kind of alluded to just a minute ago about we possess all this data about staff and students and families. And you like to think that everyone recognizes that you have that and takes proper safeguards and everything. But I think a lot of people don't realize just the, the depth and the quality of the data that we have about people, all the places it has to go. So, so say, for example, you know, in a student information system, you might have everything from, you know, the normal stuff like parents' name, step-parents' name, grandparents' name, emergency contacts, phone numbers, email addresses, all that kind of demographic stuff. Uh, but it gets down to the level of like social security numbers, immigration status, free and reduced lunch, economic status. You know, there's just a wide depth of data and it's all just sitting in your information system. And one of the things that we see and that I was kind of shocked and surprised by is schools are very dependent on software as a service. And so if we, if I can go back to when I was a classroom teacher 10 years ago, uh, we would have most of the software applications we would use would be something installed on a server on-prem that something that we we set up, we managed, they would log into it for this specific assessment or for this specific remediation program or whatever. And then it may be like maybe a dozen programs from K to 12. And so compare that, we made a really quick transition to SaaS applications where right now we have right at 80 different SaaS applications that are running that we are subscribed to and that we're sending data to for K through 12. And so, you know, as vendors very quickly wanted to get on that model of getting that yearly uh, renewal check. Right. <laughs> uh, they made that transition very fast. And I don't think education, I don't, I don't know about other, excuse me, I don't know about other industries, but I think the education didn't really have time to think about how should we share this data. And so I think one of the next big topics is going to be coming up in the education sphere is how we handle those vendor data relationships. And so the first time we did a data audit on what we were sharing and who we were sharing it with, we were seeing things where we might have a reading program that, you know, when we set it up just with the default data sharing settings, we would just say, okay, yeah, default, we'll share whatever the vendor needs. And then we start getting in and looking and the vendors are requesting things like step parent phone number, like, you know, down to that level of granularity and not when really they just need student username, homeroom, that kind of information. Uh, but they'd be getting a treasure trove of PII on the student that we don't really realize that they have access to. And we've not set up any kind of relationship with the vendor to address how they're going to protect that data. And, you know, say that it's a vendor that we decide to stop using next year. What are they going to do with that data afterwards? Are they going to destroy it? Are they going to sell it? Are they going to share it? You know, if we've not set up some kind of relationship and contract with a vendor that addresses 
the life cycle of our data, it, it's scary. So that that's one of the one of the big things that keeps me up, and especially with the kids. So if you've got a kid that's a, a kindergartner, first grade, second grader, and we share some, so we, say we inadvertently share their social security number with a vendor that has a data breach three years from now, and it's going to be until that kid is eighteen before they run a credit check for something and realize, oh, someone's been using my social security number and name for 10 years. And now I'm starting off going to college and I found out I'm trying to get a college loan and boom, I can't do anything. So terrifying. <laughs> no, Andy, look, so, you know, our, our daughter, you know, she went to the same school K through eight. And so we were good there. You know, she's now freshman in high school. And, you know, as you're you know filling out all that wonderful paperwork, um, you know, one of the things that they asked for was obviously her social security number. But I will say it was it was good on the school district that she's in where they offered an alternative student identifier. Um, but you had to opt into using the identifier yeah. and get have that document notarized, uh, which, you know, we, we gladly did. But there are things that we can do, as we both know, right? If a nation state or, you know, if some organization is adamant about getting at your data, Andy, there's not a whole lot, if anything, you know, that, that can be done to stop them. Um, you know, we're, we're just talking about, you know, putting up as many hurdles and roadblocks as we possibly can to make it difficult for them, right? Or if they do get that 40 gigs of data, that you, you have as little useful information in that possible. So, yeah. Yeah. We talk a lot about low hanging fruit and there's a solution we have like, oh, we've, we've got this really easy thing that we can shore up. You know, we try to shore it up, but we, you know, even when we try to roll out something like uh, multi-factor authentication, that's something that, you know, there's a lot of debate about, like, you know, because there are attacks that can bypass multi-factor. Some people say that it's worthless and you shouldn't do it, but it's, you know, putting one more obstacle in the way to keep from there being low hanging fruit. And so it's, I mean, there's, there's so much disagreement about what, you know, is it worth it? Because like you said, if uh, Russia or North Korea or China or someone really wants what's on my hard drive, they've got, they're going to have it. So, yeah, look, I was reading something earlier where Turkey and Colombia are now being added to that list of nation states where um, Microsoft and Google and they're, you know, when, when they track these nation states, they give them names, right? And so Turkey and Colombia now have names, Andy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so and so, yeah, it's it's not even the traditional, yeah, you know, Russia, North Korea, China. I mean, it's Colombia. Yeah. Yes, folks. Colombia in Sun in, in Central America. That Colombia, right, yeah. is now on this list where, yeah, they have hackers that are going after industries and sectors and it's you know you you look up especially with the pandemic you know you you had organizations that were doing covid-19 testing right and you would think okay global pandemic they're they're doing testing hands off right no hands on i mean people were trying to exfiltrate data and and jam up the testing and different things that they were doing around that. So, yeah, nothing is sacred. And this isn't to say that these people are APTs, but we've got, you know, on the average day, if we monitor people that are trying to log into our teachers' emails, 20% of our daily login attempts are from outside the United States. So there, there's a, 
especially there's a mindset in education, I believe, where people think I'm just a teacher. Why am I, why would I be a target? I don't have to worry about X, Y, or Z. I'm just a teacher. Uh, but then we come back with data, like 20% of the people trying to log into our mail system on an average day aren't from this country. And so, you know, there's an automatic, you know, you know, those aren't legitimate logins. Once you start to get across that idea that you are a target, it does make some of the initiatives a little bit easier. All right. So Andy, I want, I want to ask you, cause we, we touched on it a little bit, but vendors, right? Third party suppliers, maybe a, a managed security services provider. How important is it to have those people brought into your, your tech stack? How, yeah. Like, what am I trying to ask? Like, is it, is it good? Is it okay to outsource some of these, these functions, would you say? Yeah, I think especially if you're going, thinking about it from the right frame of mind, that most of the vendor contacts I have are people offering the solution and saying ransomware is the problem. We have the solution. Um, and I think that it's really easy, you know, especially if you're talking at a high level, to be like, oh, we just need to hire this vendor or have this service and we'll be good and we won't have to worry about ransomware anymore. And so I think if you're careful of that and take a more targeted approach and say, we've looked at our environment and kind of this is our posture, these are the things that are vulnerable, we could use some targeted help shoring up this deficiency and look at it more from that direction. I think it's a really valuable, valuable thing. And especially, I mean, you know, in in technology, you hear a lot of people, you know, mentioning imposter syndrome, especially in cybersecurity. I think one of the reasons is because it's such the body of knowledge in information security is so broad that it, everyone recognizes, I don't know it all. I don't know a fraction of it all. And so I think, you know, identifying those areas and be like, man, I don't know this. I need an expert to help me out with it. And so especially in the education sector where I mentioned that usually, you know, staffing is pretty light and you usually have people who are, you know, wearing many, many hats. So being able to identify where your gaps are and then identify those experts that can help you with the gaps. But being wary of single pane of glass solutions that are pitched to you. Yeah, I, I love that answer. Yeah, too many people are, like you said, sharing that they have the best pen test solution. So let's, let's go with that, Mr. Vendor, for just a second. You have the end-all, be-all for pen testing. Well, why is it that venture capitalists are funding your, you know, competitors in as as if money is going out of style. I mean, <laughs> VCs are funding cybersecurity startups to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars a year, different funding rounds of seed, series A, series B, what have you. And so, Andy, legitimately, you can't possibly have the silver bullet, right? Well, another side of that that worries me is, you know, if you're, you know, following good practice and using defense in depth and you're identifying different things and layering your defenses and there's the single product and you can only afford the single product, you don't have any room to layer or add more defense. So, you know, it, it's counterintuitive to have defense in depth, but then go with a single solution. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So, Andy, I want to get your opinion on open source tools. I mean, we don't have to go into a great amount of detail with what's been happening, but I'm, I'm just curious as an educator, now technologist practitioner, 
what what what's your opinion on open source tools? I mean, on the one hand, there's the argument that you know when you're making. I mean, I just downloaded the new release of Kali this morning, the all the tools package, and you know when you think that you can just go and BitTorrent something in 30 minutes that has tools that 10 years ago would have you could have hacked the Pentagon, and the fact that I, I can have kids that that have that on their home laptop. On the one hand, that's scary. You know, it's it's back to that kind of idea. That you mentioned earlier that, you know, you can have technology can be a tool and it depends on how you use it. And so I definitely don't think the answer is restricting that, which, you know, I used to make the joke kind of when I first moved into this role that I was in a position where uh, the majority of my end users are trying to hack the system. Because when you've got kids that really want their Minecraft on their school laptop, they're going to stop at nothing, trying to find ways to hack their device to get Minecraft on it. So I don't, I don't laugh as much about that anymore, but <laughs> just mainly because it's true. But yeah, I, I think, but the other side of that, though, is that if they're not open source and accessible, then, you know, bad guys are still going to have tools. Right. It gives you the ability to, you know, on the one hand, it's one thing to do a vulnerability assessment, but it's another thing to emulate an attack. And so from a network defensive position, you know, if, you, if you've done like the good cyber hygiene, you've got the low hanging fruit, you can't just kick back and say, OK, I think I'm good. You need to you need to test and see if you're good and take those tools that potential student attackers or potential attackers from Columbia or whatever are going to be using. So, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan philosophically open source movement. So I don't know if that gets to what you're going for. No, that does. I think my, where I land on open source is with, with everything that's been going on with um, the log four day vulnerability and folks going up to Washington to meet and talk about it. I really take the stand that if you are going to build something commercial on top open source technology, if you've benefited to any degree commercially, you need to allocate the resources to help these folks fix mm -hmm. when things of this sort come up, right? Mm -hmm. um, so to me, and this is just my opinion, right? The, the trip to DC is a waste of time. We can connect with each other. Look, I connected with you over a weekend on LinkedIn. So it's not a hard, it's not hard to get a hold of people. The problem comes in when there's a problem to be fixed and you want to allocate the time or the resources to help fix it, right? And so someone with a congressional title has to tell you what your mom and daddy taught you as just good manners and good common sense growing up, right? So that's, that's my take. So your answer was good. Yeah, it, it hit exactly where I wanted it to. Open source is good, right? Personally, I, I love Linux. I, I think Linux is good. What Apache and, you know, a lot of these other organizations are doing is amazing, right? It can continue to be amazing if, like I said, you, Corporation X, Corporation Y, Corporation Z have benefited from it. When the red flags and the alerts are going on, you don't need to send somebody to Washington. Send somebody to the headquarters of the foundation and all hands on deck, man. Let's Anyway, sorry. All right. I'm done. I mean, and, and the other side of that, too, with it being open source, you know, there are more hands in the project. There are more people testing it and more people using it. And so you're probably going to be more likely to just, you know, to uncover uh, an issue before and, and have it, you know, reported responsibly, hopefully, than if it was a closed system. Oh, exactly right. All right. So, Andy, let's let's talk to the young folks. You alluded earlier to the fact that a part of your 
career path included having students, you know, kind of help out from a technology standpoint. Now let's talk to them specifically about a career in cybersecurity. What are you going to tell them? So I think, so on one level, kind of a higher level than just the cybersecurity is the students uh, in terms of when they, because when I had them, they would be in sixth, seventh, eighth, uh, ninth grade. And so they're in that very malleable state where they they think they're grown up or they think they're almost grown up and, and they're worried about what they're going to do in their life. They're worried about their career. They're like, am I going to, like, if I don't pass eighth grade science with an A instead of a B, am I out of my dreams? And so, you know, that anxiety is so real. And um, I mean, there's so much anxiety in middle school that usually what I would, the way I'd approach career advice starting out, especially if they had no idea what they want to do, would talk about lifestyle. Like, like, what do you want your life to look like? Like, do you want to be on the move all the time? Do you want to be traveling the country? Do you want to be sitting at a computer? And so uh, we kind of start off talking about just what do you want your life to look like? And then backwards design plan from there and be like, okay, you like running all over the country. You want to like travel from place to place. What kinds of cybersecurity jobs really fit that? What do you like to do for fun? Oh, I like to craft. I like to, you know, build like, okay, so we'll look for things where, you know, you're, you're creating something. So really trying to tap into the interest, not really in a, like a, the career aptitude test that they all always have to take, but more of a day to day. Like, do you want to be like doing something with your hands? Do you want to be reading something? Do you want to be analyzing data and kind of look at the things that appeal to them and then kind of go from there? Because like, if you asked me, like when I first started studying cybersecurity stuff, I'd be like, Oh, I love cyber forensics. And I do, I really like, you know, digging through logs and like, I enjoy that. But if I had to do that 10, 12 hours a day, like I would be, you know, hitting my head on the table. So, like, I know that that's not what I want to focus all my studies on. So right. try to fit that lifestyle into, um, like, even down to, like, do you like to talk to people? Do you like to, you want to be a sales engineer? looks totally different from, you know, somebody that's coding or somebody that is doing server maintenance or cloud architecture. So I think that, that's a good way, especially in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, uh, to help them kind of along the path is to think, like, what just what do you want your day to look like? What do you want your life to look like? Oh, I, I think that is I think that is great advice, you know, and and just to to add to that a little, even if you had someone who was, let's say, non-technical, right, there's there's still a place for you in cyber. Right. I, I was mentioning those startups earlier. Right. Hey, they need great customer success people. They need great marketing people to help write great ad copy. So, I mean, yeah, you. You can you can find your fit, basically, Andy. You know you you've got you know different things that that you can yeah be a part of that you can do. All right, awesome. So, um, Andy, these next series of questions are going to be about you specifically. And so, name your favorite musician or band. So this one, so so you, you gave me kind of a heads up in advance on some of the questions you'd ask, and that's the one that I left blank on the sheet because I have no idea. It really uh, really varies. I listen to probably mostly the same things I listened to in the nineties, <laughs> but you know, I was a, I was a punk back in the nineties. I love listening to punk rock and uh, now I listen to a lot of folk punk and you know, just that kind of thing. <laughs> okay. No, that's, Hey, that's cool. Look, uh, that's why they're your favorites. Right. Yeah. And so uh, I, Hey, there is no wrong answer, Andy, <laughs> none whatsoever. Um, all right. How about a favorite hobby or pastime? So especially where I'm located, I'm in the uh, foothills of the Smokies uh, in East Tennessee. So we've got the Great Smoky Mountains National Park right in our backyard. So I love, you know, camping, hiking, fishing, kayaking, just 
when I'm not behind the keyboard, I like being far away from the keyboard. So okay. I really enjoy getting out there. All right. That's 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 another good one for sure. All right. How about a favorite place to visit on vacation? So I love so I, I hated the beach growing up and my family goes like, oh, I don't want to go to the beach. There's too much sand. And uh, I just really despised it. And uh, I love the beach now. So I love kicking back, uh, sitting in a chair out in the sand and just sitting there. <laughs> oh, hey. Maybe hopping in the waves. Uh, but I love the beach. OK. Another another good favorite. So. Let's find out um, what teacher at any level would you say had the greatest impact on you? Yeah, so that, that's an easy one for me. So uh, when I was in high school, I was very bent towards English, literature, humanities, uh, very much on that side of things. I had a fantastic string of English teachers in particular. Um, and so if you, you know, if I talk about my interest, even in high school, I was very interested in science uh, in particular. But it was one of those strings where, you know, you have very influential teachers in a subject and you gravitate there, not necessarily because of the content, uh, but because of the fantastic people. Um, and so I had a series of great English teachers, but in particular, my senior year of high school, uh, Cynthia Freeman taught my humanities class. And we had a class called Senior Inquiry that was about kind of the transition from high school to after high school. But it was a lot of focus on, you know, what do you want to do with your life? What are your what do you want your career to look like? How do you make that transition from now to the next step? Um, and then I also had her for English. So I had her, uh, we had eight classes my senior year and she was three of the eight. And she was just a fantastic mentor, a fantastic role model. And she was great at, so when we talk about the lifestyle stuff, uh, I love making things like whether it's a physical thing or a solution or a process. I, I just love creating something from nothing uh, or fixing something. So she always assigned projects where we had to really dig in and make something. So like we did Dante's Inferno in her class. And one of the, the final project was we had to pick a section of it and recreate a museum of that piece. And so we took a stairwell uh, in our building and we you know went to the level like we went and cut locust and like had it on the wall. So that it's like the big sharp uh, spines poking out in briars and we burned sulfur and like it, it was just the most miserable place to be for that hour. But like she just she had a, a great way of giving great projects that let you, you know, she wouldn't give expectations. She would say, you know, here's the topic. Wow me. And you'd take that opportunity and you you would see how much you could see what you could do, what your limits were of coming up with something creative and interesting. And she, she was just a fantastic guide in that. And so she's one of the teachers, even though I still, I work in the school system that I went to school in. She's one of the only people that I still see at least on an annual basis. So we still make a, you know, my kids will go trick or treating at her house every year try to meet up for lunch. So it's, you know, one of those people that you stay in contact with and, you know, they believe in you and, you know, they, they make you set your expectations for yourself really high. So she was definitely that teacher. Oh, shout out to Miss Freeman. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's good stuff, man. All right. So Andy, let's jump in the time machine and go back to 18 year old Andy. Um, what is the Andy of today going to tell his 18 year old self? So the, the number one thing I would tell myself was use your time wisely. So I, I'm especially, I'm in the season of my life now where, you know, I've got, I've got two kids, I've got a wife, I've got a job. And there'll be days where I'm just like, I just want to like, I want to do this thing in my home lab, or I want to do this thing. I, I want to set this thing up or I want to try this project. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to schedule that for like 1130 tonight and 1130 to 1145. And then tomorrow morning I'll get up early. And I think back to 18 year old Andy and I'm like, dang, you wasted time. Uh, just in like hours of nothing to do. I'm like, oh, I'll just sit here and I'll do whatever. But I just want to shake and be like, use this time, go do something. So that, that would be my, 
definite top advice for 18 year old Andy. No, look, Andy, I think that's, I think that is great advice. I've, I've been around the sun many times now, and I think I would certainly say the same to my 18 year old self and probably my 28 year old (laughs) self while I was at it. Shoot. No, that's, that's, that's good advice. That is the, the two things that people, you know, give you that are the most precious, their time and their money. Right. And if they give you both, then, man, that, that speaks volumes. But, yeah, you, you can never get that time back, you know. And, um, yeah, you always need to make sure that you have, yeah, put it to good use. So, yeah, flawless advice, my man. <laughs> yeah. Like, man, um, if you could just give me some of that time and I'd take it now, I'd be golden. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. I had someone tell me recently, yeah, I need 30 hours instead of 24. I was like, don't we all, brother? Don't be all. Yeah, and that was a, one of the things. So back to Miss Freeman, uh, one of the things she would always, when we'd start complaining about, oh, this project's so big, we need more time. And she would just stop the class and say, okay, if you're not busy, raise your hand. And, you know, no one would raise their hand. And everybody would look like, okay, I get it. We're all busy. We all need the 30 hours. So that's, that's a definite good lesson. Oh, I agreed. Well, look, Andy, as with all things, man, we've come to the end of a really good time. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. But before we go, what is the best way for people to get in contact with you? Uh, so best way. Ooh, uh, so I have a uh, LinkedIn, Andy Lombardo. That's usually the, the place where most of my professional networking kind of things goes. Uh, as long as you're not a vendor, because uh, I'm sorry, vendors, I ignore you on LinkedIn. Uh, if you haven't noticed yet. Well, as and as and as well, you should look at I, I mean, nothing against, you know, vendors or whatever. But there is there is a way in which you contact people and it's not spamming them on LinkedIn, folks. I'm just saying. So, yeah, please don't do that. Any of our vendor friends that are out there, please, please don't disrespect people's time or, you know, their yeah, opportunity to connect by doing that. So, OK. But with that said, um, Andy, again. Man, thank you for being with us. And we will definitely have that information in the show notes. And Techamay Presents family, thank you as always for listening. And be sure to tune in next time when we will have another technology expert share their wisdom. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to another episode of Tech and Main Presents. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Don't forget to tell your friends. And thanks for being a part of the Tech and Main Presents community.